Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. What a fantastic week of content we have brought you. Sunday, Paula and I brought you the second installment of Street Names. Ever wonder why a street is given a name? Head back and listen to our episodes. We have two of them so far, and more to come. Then Wednesday, Ohio Mysteries Backroads with Dan and Mike brought you a year in review on famous Ohioans who passed away in 2023. Be sure to check them out. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host Steve Yoder. With us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 plus years at the Acker Beacon Journal telling stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi everyone. Georgetown, Ohio. It's the county seat of Brown County in southwest Ohio, right along the Ohio River. It's still a village, never quite achieving the population needed to become a city. With about 4,400 people living there, Georgetown is a quaint, family-oriented, close-knit community where most people would know each other by face, if not by name. It also has a very lofty place in history. President Ulysses S. Grant grew up there from 1823 to 1839. You can visit his childhood home and the school he attended. Even the tannery where his father worked is right across the street. I think the Ohio Historical Society runs these sites. Check it out. You need some things to do this winter, right? More recently... The town added a dark chapter to its history. From 2014 to 2018, there were 450 farmers across nine Midwestern states who took their lives when commodity prices fell dramatically. I did not know this. Georgetown made the news because three of those farmers were local men. How absolutely tragic. They were all in their 50s and 60s, lifelong farmers who were suddenly facing down a mountain load of debt and believing there was no way out. For some, it just turned out to be too much of a burden to bear. Their deaths really rocked the small community. Tonight's story is about something else that stunned Georgetown. 
It happened way back in 1977, when only 3,000 souls lived there. And some local boys discovered the head of a girl from the local high school floating in a creek. Her name was Cheryl Fossil. Her case is unusual in many ways. No one has been convicted of her murder, but her family did get some justice. The motive for her murder turned out to be something no one expected. And her case revealed official misconduct and even possible ties to an arson that gutted the historic courthouse there. Well, we've got a lot to unwrap, so let's get started. Cheryl Fossil was the youngest of five children born to Mr. and Mrs. Cloyd Fossil. Her dad died when she was seven years old, and she was raised by her mom and older siblings. In June of 1977, she was 16 years old and had just finished her junior year. She was a petite thing, just 4 feet 11 inches and 84 pounds, but they said she was very independent and very focused on what she wanted to do with her life. She attended Georgetown High for her freshman and sophomore years, then transferred to Southern Hills Joint Vocational School to take advantage of their law enforcement program. Because of her diminutive size, the program didn't have a uniform that fit her. She didn't care. For class activities, she donned the cap and improvised as best she could when her classmates were wearing their full attire for things like directing traffic at the Brown County Fair or issuing IDs to vocational school students. Cheryl knew she wanted to be a juvenile officer someday, and those who knew her thought she'd be perfect for the job, in part because she had to work through some issues herself. You see, the family had moved to Georgetown from nearby Hammersville after her father died, and though she seemed to adjust okay, those teenage years came in with a vengeance and found her pushing the envelope. Her older sister, Linda Duggins, shared this story. When Cheryl was younger, she was mixed up about things, and she ran away from home. It was just up the street, and she was only gone for a few days but the experience really opened her eyes. After that, she wanted to counsel others in the same situation. She felt she could understand them because she had been through it. While people often described Cheryl as quiet, Linda said she was also outspoken and seemed to know everyone in town. She never held a grudge and was quick to forgive, and she was compassionate maybe too compassionate. She babysat all the time and rarely took money for it, saying the people who needed her couldn't afford to pay. She also volunteered for a time at Brown County Hospital, though her mom made her quit because she didn't always have a ride and her mom didn't want her walking there. Cheryl didn't date a lot. She did go to the junior-senior prom with a boy, borrowing a dress her sister had worn to a wedding and accessorizing it with the tallest heels she could find. She was always trying to look taller, 
but dating was the exception. Cheryl was also a passionate anti-abortionist. She had books and posters in her bedroom about it and gave long speeches to friends, family, and anyone else who would hear her out. The first week of June in 1977, the summer vacation just having started, four Brown County boys decided to go fishing in Straight Creek, a site below a bridge on U.S. 63, about two miles from Georgetown. But there was more than fish in that creek. Lying in about two inches of water, they found a human head of a young woman. Local officials guessed it might be Cheryl Fossil, because five days earlier, Cheryl's mom had reported her daughter missing. So, Dental records were acquired, and Brown County Coroner Dr. John Donahue confirmed what everyone suspected. He added that it appeared Cheryl had been dead at least three days. The Brown County Sheriff, Charles Ernest, had his deputies comb the area of the creek with the help of the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, but they couldn't find the rest of Cheryl's body or any clues as to what had happened. You can imagine the state of shock this small rural community was thrown into. A local daughter, the decapitated head of one of their high school students. People started locking their doors for the first time in their lives. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A week after Cheryl's head was found, another crime put the town on edge even more. Someone tossed an incendiary device through a second-floor window of the county courthouse, a 180-year-old structure on the National Register of Historic Places. The building had been part of the lives of generations of local families. The fire gutted the building. Officials kept reassuring residents there wasn't a crime spree going on, and the two incidents were not related. But people couldn't help but be fearful. One resident, Edna Adamson of Green Street, told a reporter, I'm a nervous wreck since it all happened. I don't stay at home at night anymore. Now I go to my son's. A friend of Cheryl's, Kim Iverson, even boarded a bus to South Dakota saying she was afraid of becoming the next victim. Now, before June was out, residents had a focus for their fear and anger because police unexpectedly released a drawing of a man said to have last been seen in Cheryl's company. The sheriff didn't explain the circumstances of the sighting, like who saw them or where they were seen, 
only that they were together at 5.30 p.m. on June 4. The man was white, about six feet tall, roughly 25 years of age, with a collar-length dark brown or black hair. He had broad shoulders, wore blue jeans and a red baseball cap, and had sunglasses. He was driving a car with a white body and a black top, possibly a late 1960s or early 1970s model with a Citizens Band radio antenna on the trunk. The car could have been a Ford Thunderbird, Fairlane, or Torino. Then, on June 28, another break in the case. Two Cincinnati teens, ages 14 and 18, were fishing in Bromley Hollow Creek that's just inside the limits of Adams County, near Ohio 125. Their leisurely Tuesday afternoon took a dark turn when they found the headless body of a young nude female laying in water. Officials quickly confirmed it was Cheryl. Before this... A $1,000 reward seeking information had been posted by an anonymous donor. Now, Brown County Prosecutor William Stapleton added $5,000 more, half of his reward fund. But the money did not loosen any lips, and the case went cold. Years went by with little to no activity as far as the public could see only briefly lighting up again in 1981, that was four years later, when a Brown County hunter setting traps found a woman's body in Straight Creek, the same creek where Cheryl's head was discovered, though five miles more downriver in Union Township. The woman was nude and guessed to be 16 to 20 years old, and she'd been dead for less than 48 hours. The murder was another blow to Georgetown because the victim was revealed to be another local girl, 15-year-old Roberta Sue Guther. But police wrapped this case up quickly. Within a week, they arrested a 21-year-old man named Robert Stidham, whom people had seen leave a party with Roberta just a week earlier. Later that year, Stidham was convicted of beating Roberta to death and sentenced to life in prison. But Roberta's murder had nothing to do with Cheryl's murder, and Cheryl's file went right back into the cold case room, where it remained for decades until 2001, when someone wanted to clear their conscience. A woman named Jean Ann Chin was dying of cancer in 1998, and as the end approached, she revealed to her brother that she knew about Cheryl Fossil's death. She named three men and another woman who were all involved. The Brown County Sheriff's Office jumped on the case again. The second woman involved turned out to have been killed in Texas, but the three men were all still in town. In 2001, investigators for the first time publicly revealed they had two suspects in Cheryl's murder and that they had interviewed one of them. 
Their names were not made public and only revealed to a grand jury in August of 2002 when prosecutors paraded before them 40 witnesses, from coroners to forensic experts to police investigators. But there was nothing in the way of physical evidence, and some files in the case had been lost or destroyed. The grand jury refused to return an indictment, and the prosecutor threw up his hands and said there was nothing else they could do. But Cheryl Fossil's family did have something else they could do, and they did it. Two months after the grand jury declined to indict, they filed a civil suit accusing the two men of being liable in the death of Cheryl. And that court action brought to light for the first time the names of the suspects and the surprising motive for Cheryl's killing. The two suspects were from Georgetown. Thomas Aubrey Watson, a phone company employee who went by the nickname Frog, and Michael R. Milligan, the son of a wealthy machine parts business owner who was married to the daughter of a former Brown County sheriff. The suit also accused a third man, Nick Sangus, the son of a local bar owner, of helping plan the slaying and covering it up. Here's the story that the dying woman gave. A man named Monroe Hines was shot to death inside R.G.'s bar in Georgetown in 1977, and the sheriff subsequently arrested a suspect named Ralph Moore. Moore was tried and convicted in the murder of Hines and ever since had been serving a life sentence. But Moore did not kill Monroe Hines, the woman said. Hines had been killed by Nick Sangus, whose family operated a local bar. And young Cheryl Fossil knew it. Thomas Watson and Michael Milligan wanted to intimidate Cheryl and make sure she wouldn't talk. They took her to a local creek in a jeep driven by Watson, with the original intent to scare her. Instead, they beat her to death. Then the men tied her neck to the jeep and her feet to a tree and pulled her head from her body. According to the family's lawsuit, Watson himself had confessed as much to investigators, but his confession and other evidence was mishandled by some Brown County officials who wanted to protect the conviction of Ralph Moore in the bar murder of Monroe Hines. Several officials were accused of removing or destroying files to protect their case and the real killer, Nick Sangus. But by the time this civil suit was filed, Nick Sangus couldn't confirm or deny. He died of a drug overdose in 2003. By that time, he had acquired a rap sheet filled with drug charges. The lawsuit went to a trial in a federal courtroom in Covington, Kentucky, and in 2007, the Fossil family scored a victory. The jury named Watson and Milligan as liable for Cheryl's death, 
and awarded Cheryl's surviving siblings a total of $1 million in damages. The family also made an out-of-court settlement with Brown County and former Sheriff Wendell Crawford for their mishandling of evidence. That November of 2007, just a few hours after the jury's ruling, Cheryl's family gathered at her grave. They prayed, wept, held hands, and left a bouquet of flowers at her tombstone. It's a long time coming, her brother David whispered. It was a bittersweet ending. Though the two men were identified and held liable, a civil suit is not a criminal case, and it carries no prison time. Notably, Watson denies having made any confession, and both men continue to hold out that they had nothing to do with Cheryl's death. There were some other repercussions from that lawsuit as well. After Nick Sangus died, a key witness in the murder trial of Ralph Moore came forward to say he lied, that Moore didn't kill Hines, but rather Sangus, and that he was too afraid to talk because Sangus once held a gun to his head and threatened to kill him. Now that Sangus was dead, he felt free to tell the truth. This was in 2003. Now, I could not find a single story about whether his confession led to the release of Ralph Moore. I sure hope it would. But Moore is not listed in Ohio's prisoner database, so he either died in prison or he won his release. The other revelation was that courthouse fire. The one locals feared was connected to Cheryl's death and that the sheriff insisted had no connection at all? Well, it's possible it did. Brown County Sheriff Dwayne Wenninger, who reopened Cheryl's case when he first won the office back in 2000, noted that the place targeted by the fire was where the Cheryl Fossil file had been kept, and it led to some of those documents being destroyed. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. And we will see you back here for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.